does it take to build a unicorn, a company worth a billion dollars? I interviewed Rob Schmick, who's the founder of Boltech. His insights into resilience, how to build a company with purpose are mind-blowing. I hope you enjoy this interview. Rob, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. Maybe we could kick off by you kindly telling the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me today. I'm Rob Schimmick. I'm the CEO of Boltech. So we are an international insurtech, a high-growth international insurtech operating on three continents, North America, Europe, and Asia. I'm speaking to you today from Singapore, where I call my home day-to-day, but I think you can tell from the accent behind this voice that that's not my original location. I grew up in uh, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Well, we're going to get into your story. I'm really fascinated about how um, you start there and, and in Singapore running a unicorn. So I think the audience would be interested to hear that backstory. Before we kick off, I, I wondered um, if you knew Tech was going to be a unicorn when you uh, started the company, joined the company in April 2020. You know, Simon, sometimes people ask the question about, did you know that it would be a unicorn or did you set out for it to be a unicorn? And I prefer to say that, like everyone else, we set out to do something that was meaningful um, and you want to make a difference. And if you're going to make a difference, a bit like you try to do with your podcast, where you want to reach out to many people and make a difference for many people. We wanted it to be a difference maker that really was at scale. And if you're going to be a difference maker that's at scale and have it be really meaningful and a outcome that I think would be a desired end outcome or a side effect is to become a unicorn. Did you always know this concept of difference maker? I mean, I call this purpose, right? The business having a purpose beyond what it does and how it does it, right? I mean, making money, of course, is important for sustainability and, and, and so on. And what you do in your case is clear. But like, did you always have this concept of purpose in, in, in your mind from a young age? Or is this something that you've discovered as you've developed your career? I think I always had a vision that I would do something that was um, purposeful and without a doubt. And as I've made decisions along the path in my career journey, Every time I've made a change in my profession, I've made those changes because I felt like I had run the end of the course that I was on and that I would no longer be making progress toward an end purpose. So I think it's like a book. You know, the Each of these um, pages is will make a chapter and the chapters together make a book. But my intention for my whole book is to live a life with purpose and I think that the Boltec chapter is one of those chapters of the life with a purpose. Now, I know that you have invested in businesses and, and done acquisitions in some respects to grow, I guess, and in some respects to build out additional capabilities at your business. Is there a strategy behind the purchases? Is purpose part of that strategy? Absolutely. So I'll start with a sort of a um, general thought that I have. And that is that I'm not someone who believes that I have to do everything myself, that Boltec has to build everything itself. And that's in a very simple way with a little bit of a smile on my face. I say that's because I don't want to die of old age trying to create um, this business. I want to get there quick um, or quicker and 
to do everything ourselves and to build everything from scratch, it takes time. Now, I don't want to be of the view that you can just go out there and do a ton of acquisitions, sew them together, and in the end, you've created something um, that is a real masterpiece. But instead, I believe that it's a combination. Some things that we've grown organically, that we've done by ourselves with our own hands, like planting seeds in a garden and seeing them grow up to be plants or trees. And some things where we've had, had to go out and buy pieces of this so that we didn't do it ourselves. The, the fact of the matter is we operate in a highly regulated industry. So I'm an insure tech. So that means we're insurance technology. And the insurance industry is highly regulated. So as a result of that, you need licenses. You need to be able to operate in a particular manner to satisfy the regulators. And building all of that from scratch might take years and years and years. And sometimes it's just easier to go out and acquire a company that has already made many of those inroads, and then you can put it together as part of the overall organization. So that's been the general philosophy. I think just translating that for people that are listening that perhaps dream of starting a company or building a business, I think, and tell me if you think this statement is true, that you need to learn to delegate. I mean, partly that's what you're also saying. As a management style, you can't do it all yourself. So you need to delegate. I think a lot of people that are building businesses as well get, get stuck running everything because they can't delegate. In a way, you're also talking about that as a management style there when you describe that philosophy, right? I love that way of thinking, Simon. I think what you said is perfect. That's right. It, it is partly about a management philosophy where even with your team, you have to be able to delegate. If you don't, you will be doing everything yourself. And, and philosophically, I am definitely someone who likes to have their hands in the middle of the action. I like to lead from the front, but make no mistake about it, I'm a delegator. And I am because from the simple um, standpoint that I just recognize that I can cover up far more territory with far better capabilities if I use the resources around me and allow those resources to grow and to, to use their capabilities without me hampering them. And same thing here on the acquisition front, exactly as you said. Um, by saying I'm not going to build it all myself, that's the same as saying, like you said, that it's, a, it's an element of philosophical delegation. To be honest with you, a lot of people really stumble on that. Um, for me, I think it's just an absolutely necessary building block because it brings you back to what I said at the very beginning of this conversation. If, if you don't do it that way, if you don't delegate, if you don't use the resources around you, one, I think you'll limit the degree of success you'll ever have, but two, you will die of old age trying to make this happen. I do want to die of old age, I just don't want to die of old age on the mission of building the company that I'm trying to build today. Mm. Well, I, I sold uh, my last company to PricewaterhouseCooper. So, um, I, and I asked them why, why they bought the business. And, and they said, in part, Simon, to save time. So people buy time, uh, which, which is a really fascinating concept, something, something I've only recently learned myself. And it's a really good tip that you're highlighting there. And I think for people listening, they might, they might be saying to themselves, well, it's okay to delegate, you know, if you've got the money to to hire good people. Um, 
So let's talk a little bit about you know the hiring process or who you look for, your 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 philosophy around around getting the right people on board, um, and and uh, yeah, so share share your knowledge there a little bit. So I think I would make three quick points here, Simon. The f- the first one is um, I am really big on this idea that I don't intend to run this ship that I'm running um, until I'm 100 years old. Um, there are people who are really good, who are capable of doing that, but um, I, I'm not one of them. And so I think if you're ever going to have this aspiration to be able to hand over the world to the next generation, um, then you have to be able to attract talent that is, I hope, better than you are so that the next generation shouldn't be a step down. It should be a step up. So I always focus on people who I think are better than me. I focus on people who I think complement my skill set. I, I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And I'm looking for folks who have many of the same um, common characteristics, but not all of the same skills and all of the same interests. And so to me, that's a really big thing. The, the, the second element of, that, of this comes back down to this delegation point that you and I were just on a moment ago. If you hire great people and then you squash them by just making them subordinate to you and and to to being um, soldiers who execute the the marching orders no matter what without um, being able to use their great minds and think, um, it's not going to be a long um, living relationship between you and the employees. So I, I'm very much someone who believes on um, giving them the freedom to do what they want to do. And you know, one of the things sometimes people forget is when you were going through your own career and you were growing up and you were coming through the through uh, the earlier stages in your, in your career, didn't you appreciate when people would give you some flexibility um, to demonstrate your own capabilities and quite frankly, to make some of your own mistakes? And then I think the the last point that I would make um, about talent is, you know, this is not the area uh, of the organization that you should skimp on. Um, if you're going to do anything, it's have great people. Um, there there will always be strengths and weaknesses in your organization. Think of a sporting team. Not every team has a superstar at every position. Maybe they're better at offense than defense. Whatever it is, you will always have something that's a relative weakness, but what you really must do is make the human capital, the people, the leadership element of what you do a strength. Mm, God, such, such such gems there. I hope people are taking notes. I think a lot of the time people overcomplicate um, the hiring process, but you know, if you, if you follow what you just described there, I think a lot of people would have a lot more success. As you said quite rightly, I think the key element for me I've noticed is trusting your people to make mistakes you know let, let them make mistakes it is how we learn right so so not coming down on them if they do make a mistake and, and supporting them to enable them to do that so they take control of their their area um and i, I wondered on on the um on, on the incentive side and i know the subject of of money is always very sensitive and and, and i wouldn't expect you to disclose numbers but but I'm interested, like a lot of people that want to start a company, look, for example, to bring someone in as a co-founder or as a partner, look to give them equity. 
um, versus salary. Any philosophy around this that you believe incentivizes people? Well, you know that this is a very complicated topic, and any answer that I give will probably leave people saying, well, that was an incomplete, or or that applies maybe for your company, but doesn't fit for everyone. So, so maybe I'll just um, make a couple of simple comments. The first one is, especially with a entrepreneurial organization, I'm a huge believer in having um, folks have skin in the game and having a stake in the company. They should see the upside. The, the truth of the matter is, as a smaller organization, we won't always have the resources. We don't have the dollars necessarily maybe that that a um, some of the more wealthy, well-established organizations have. But we have something really interesting, um, which I think is an opportunity for people to own a really meaningful stake in the thing that they're that they're building in the company that they're working for. So I'm a big believer in that. The second thing is um, always to be thoughtful about what does it take to make a package as a whole. It's not always just about equity. It's not always just about cash. It's not even always about dollars of compensation in the form of equity or cash. Um, some of it's about giving people a meaningful purpose in their job. Some of that, is, some of it is about giving them a career path. Some of that is about giving them the confidence and the security that this is an organization that they can truly count on that will that will stand by them if they stand by the company through good times and bad times. Because let's face it, when we began Boltec, we didn't expect a global pandemic. Then we didn't expect a Ukraine-Russia um, conflict. Um, we don't. We didn't expect some of the economic um, environment that we operate in today. We didn't expect that the insurtech fintech marketplace would be as disrupted and as um, maybe challenged from a capital raising valuation perspective. But but it just brings you back to a very simple um, point, which is the ability to succeed in an environment like this for all of your employees it brings you back to having things that you really want those employees to bring to the table. And the number one thing that I like the employees to bring is I like them to bring the illities and the uities. Um, you've got to have the illities of flexibility. You've got to have great adaptability. Um, and you've got to be able to deal with um, the, the ambiguity that comes with not knowing all of the answers all of the time. And so that's true. I've broadened this answer here to extend well beyond dollars and cents and compensation, but more about a broader based philosophy of how do you attract and retain people in the first place? So, so, uh, for people listening again who might be wondering, okay, how do I how do I bring people in? If they listen very carefully to what you're saying, I, I boil it down to kind of almost like culture the culture of the company, if you get the comp company culture right, I mean, I, I have hired people who've been willing to come on board for no salary just because they believe in the mission and they like the team. You know, they they, they, you know, they want to work on that team. And so, yeah, I think, I think you know, flexibility and being able to adapt and, and having that ability to to roll with the punches and, go, and, and as you say, deal with difficult times together as a unit 
Um, most people I know who quit, quit because they don't like the team. Nothing to do with money. Um, so, yeah, really interesting. I, th I think um, when when you were building out, I guess, the, the business at the beginning, you know, who, who were your first few hires when you're building out a business like this? What, what, what What's your strategic you know, rollout plan? It's a great it's a great question and one that I talk about with my own team quite a bit because when I very first came to Asia, I came out of the United States, I came into the Asian marketplace, and I brought two initial employees into the organization, both who were um, Western, meaning I had worked with them in the United States, um, but had worked with them on a global basis. But I brought people who I believed complemented my capabilities very well. Um, someone who I think was much tougher than me was one of the main early leaders and someone who was just way, way, way smarter than me um, was one of the early leaders. Um, and both of those two leaders served a really important purpose when we were very first trying to kick off the concept of what would Boltec be. Interestingly, neither of those leaders is still in the Boltec organization. Now you could say, oh my gosh, now this guy confuses me. He just talked to me about retaining and, and bringing in the best people and thinking about the future. And then he tells me that the two first two people that he had brought in um, are no longer in the organization. I actually think what you would see is if you met with those two people, one of whom is a CEO of another InsurTech, but if you met with them, they would tell you that this was a great experience. This was an experience that benefited them, but I also say it was an experience that benefited Boltec. They served a really important purpose, bringing early capability to a Boltec organization that had really had very little um, experience and very little um, traction because we were just a idea becoming a startup. And so those two resources that I just talked about, one was um, had strength in the operational side of how do you make sure that the back office gets done the way that the back office should get done. And the other one had expertise in the insurance side, a, a great thinker and a great underwriting mind. Um, but again, both of those were perfect for the time that um, they were on the organization team. And since then, we've continued to add additional pieces and change them out. But I think one other point that I'd make, Simon, is you can't get so wedded to an idea or to a path that you're not willing to continue to shift and change. So neither of those two leaders is still with me today. They're both still great friends. They're both still investors in Boltec, and they're both now doing other things that I think their Boltec experience will help them with, and Boltec benefits from the great things that they did while they were with us. I, I really love this point. It doesn't get talked about enough in the, the discussion of business, and the point I'm, I think people need to make sure they don't miss is that you know, turnover isn't a bad thing in a business. And having people come in, yes, ideally they stay with you forever. But I think that that's also naive to think that. But there are certain people building businesses at certain stages that are perfect. And so it's very rare, I think, actually, to have your um, your team be the same team for 20 years. And, and I think it's because it's not healthy. 
necessarily either. You know, people need to grow, need to move on to other things, and they need to develop. And I think turnover as a concept uh, is actually a really healthy thing, but a lot of people don't think so, especially when you're talking about culture, you're not talking about hiring, how to incentivize people, how to keep people, really. Like you say, it's almost a conflict to then say, well, they did a good job, they enjoyed it, time was up, they did something else. So, you know, that's actually healthy. The first person that ever worked for me when they left me, I cried. I cried. I'm like, oh, no, I'm never going to find someone as good as that person. And I did find someone. And I think it's really important to talk about this stuff, actually, because people... I think they're scared to hire people because they want them to be the perfect partner. You know, they almost talk about it like marriage and it doesn't have to be that way, right? No, no. I I love the the way you just talked about that because it, it shows your emotional side and, and sort of your your people side. I'm the same way. I, I think if you went back and talked to people who worked with me over the course of my career, they would tell you that they've loved it. Not everyone. But, but most of them would say they've loved it and they've learned a lot. But that doesn't mean that they're all with me today. Um, the, the, the nature of the beast is that you must continue to change. My responsibility is more so to the long-term success of the organization as a whole. We now have 1,500 employees in the Boltec organization. That's who my loyalty sits with, the 1,500 not to one or two or or 20 of my um, inner circle, um, but instead, and, and I'm loyal to my inner circle, but there there is a time where it's time for the next set of ideas, the next set of capabilities to take an organization forward. I do think, Simon, that's one of the things people struggle with the most, the concept of when to make changes. And again, I, to use the analogy I used a little bit earlier about a, a sporting organization. You know, I wouldn't want to be the general manager of a sports team because I get so emotionally attached to the players. I never want to see the team change. And yet if the team never changed, then you, if you're not going to win the championship, you're not going to win the championship. And so unfortunately, it becomes necessary for people to recognize the importance of change, the value of change, and how to balance um, keeping things steady and creating change all at the same time. It's um, I, I, There's a couple of things I don't want people to miss that you said. Uh, for example, you said, I hire people smarter than me. You know, th this is really important. And you, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You're in the wrong room. Or as they say now, if you're the smartest person in the Zoom, you're in the wrong Zoom, right? It, it, it's, it's really empowering to bring people smarter than you in. And, and and almost realize that there are people smarter than you. You know, like make sure as a be humble, which you 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 know you've got. And I think the other thing that's really important, and I'd, I'd love to dive into it a little bit more with you, is that knowing when uh, when when you are when you should be handing the reins over, for example. You know, I think about Ronaldo. You know, Ronaldo's like one of my hero footballers. He's just an incredible footballer. But even you know, we all can see that he's no longer the best. So sometimes that can affect their World Cup opportunity because he was still so revered and loved. But was he the right person to be playing in the World Cup recently? I'll probably get into a lot of trouble t touching on football. But, you know, that concept, right? That concept. So so how do you, because, you know, just go delving into your history a little bit. I mean, you were the MD at forward before. How did you know it was time to move on? And and how do you identify that as, as, a, as a leader? Yeah, it, it's it's very tough to do, Simon, but I, I typically talk about two things with my team. The first thing that I say is think of it like a leader of a country. 
Um, I think that their term limits exist for a reason. And, and when you have a president or a leader of the of the company, of the country, excuse me, that, that re, that gets replaced over time because they've served their term limits. It's a bittersweet time. People will be nostalgic about the great things that happened when that leader was in place. But the truth of the matter is, after a four-year or a two-term limit, eight-year tenure, at some point in time, you've given your great ideas, your best ideas have already had the opportunity to be sewn into the fabric of the organization. And so when I came to Asia, um, I literally signed a seven-year contract. And I felt in my mind that seven years would be the right number. I wanted to make sure that it was very clear to anyone who I came in to work with that you can't outweigh me. I'm going to be here for an extended period of time. We're going to get this done. And we're going to get this done really well. And you'll either get on board or you should find another direction. So it sent the message of longevity, but it also sent the message that this is has a term limit. And it doesn't mean that I would not stay on beyond that initial term limit, but not for another seven years. Um, for some period of time to help make things um, work in whatever environment we're in, but I'll tell you that I'm now have been in Asia since 2018. It's 2023. I'm five years will be five years in soon, and I every day am thinking about the longer term succession plan for my organization, so that Boltec has a much longer life, much longer longevity than just my tenure at the helm. And I think that when people start to think of themselves as bigger than the organization, that the organization won't succeed unless I'm here or I'm at the helm, they're crazy. I think that that is just a, a poor way to think. What I instead think of is how can I put as much knowledge and as much of my heart and my blood, sweat, and tears and capabilities into this organization and put it in a place to succeed even more when I'm gone. Uh, and if necessary, have the flexibility to stick around and do what, what people want. Um, but that's that's the first thing I talk about the team with the team. And it also, by the way, gives the, the new folks who've joined the organization or even just the team that's been at the core of the Boltec organization for years, it gives them the hope, the expectation that they will have a chance to be the next leader of the organization. And I think it's critical to be able to create that succession um, opportunity in the mind of the team. So we, t we talk about that kind of thing very frequently. Um, we also talk about this idea that um, you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. And so therefore, you should be working for your succession plan. You should be working for the, the future and planning for what happens if you were not here tomorrow pretty much every day. So I've been working on this, um, not just in the last year, but almost since the very beginning saying, who would be the people that would be best to follow me and keep tinkering with that 
but it gives an opportunity to test drive it, to explore it, and in the end, um, to give optionality to the board and to the investors, and quite frankly, to those employees who might want to step up to where they can decide if this makes sense for them in the future. One of the things I really love about the way you think is is the way you you put the company first. That That's the instinct I get on all the different elements you're talking about, you know, even to the point where you say, well, if I... If I was no longer an effective leader, if I was no longer the right leader, then that's fine. It's, I would step aside and someone else would come in. You're basically always putting the company first. And you know what? Having now interviewed over 200 of the world's most successful entrepreneurs, I've noticed that to be a common trait, actually. Even founders of companies would step aside if they felt that the company would be better off without them. And that's why they succeed. You're putting best interests of the company first, as opposed to controlling the business for yourself or, or making yourself irreplaceable and potentially therefore more valuable you're you're thinking what's good for the company right and and, and where did you learn this philosophy we you know i know i would love to talk a little bit about your mba and whether that was useful but you know what 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 did you where did you learn this 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 way of thinking it um i don't know that i would point to a specific place where i learned it but but i will say this in, in my earlier position that I had at AIG, um, a great proving ground, one of the most um, complex but really wonderful organizations in the world, um, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of people who gave their heart every day for the success of that organization. And in 2008, the company unfortunately found itself at the center of the global financial crisis. Um, and I think without having any prejudice about what caused, who caused, because people can always have views of, of fault, let's stay away from fault and let's talk about something different, which is once you have a problem, um, what do you do about it? And I came into that organization as part of the team that was designed to help deal with problems. And um, I think the team, the company as a whole, all the way from the board to all of the members of the management team, worked tirelessly to make that happen. But I can tell you that um, we were not always loved um, in the media, in the press, etc., and it would have been easier for me personally to leave the company. Uh, I had plenty of opportunity to lead. I could have made more money leaving. I could have been in a very successful position with several other organizations. But it was absolutely my view that I had a responsibility and an opportunity, quite frankly. What happens if you can make this all succeed or be a part of a team that makes all of this succeed, it can be a beautiful thing. And so um, I did vote with my feet. I expressed my loyalty to my own team. I was one of the folks who was a leader from the front. But although I've used the I word in this, um, it was never done by one person. It was never done by me. It was done by a band of people who were like-minded who said, we can work together to try to help an organization to find a good path through a very complicated situation. And in the end, the AIG story, I think, is a miraculous story. The, the company at the center of the global financial crisis repaid 
$180 billion U.S. dollars to the United States government. And the end effect of that is that the company still exists today and is serving a very meaningful purpose in society. And I think that that's fantastic. But I would just say that, that it wasn't today at Boltec that I developed a view that said, well, I should do what's in the best interests of others or of the organization. I think that it is something that I would recommend to everyone. <laughs> we should all try to do things that benefit everyone. And this can be a win-win world. Even though it can be more painful, rest assured it can be a much, much, much more rewarding um, outcome and a much more rewarding opportunity for the future. Well, I think life, uh, business life and personal life, you know, reflect each other. And um, I, I think the philosophy I've always tried to personally instill in people is that it's when you help other people, you are happier, actually. We're tribal by nature, right? So we're meant to help other people. We're meant to help our tribe. So if you take the same philosophy in business that you're talking about and think about how you can help your tribe, you will be happier. That, that, that's the irony. If, if you just try to protect your job or work just for yourself within the organization, you will be unhappy. So there's a real life lesson in, in this business lesson um, that we're talking about. Now, um, your, your MBA... Um, a lot of people uh, would love to do an MBA. I, I think they're expensive. Um, what were the lessons you learned from your MBA? Maybe we can save someone uh, years of, of work and uh, and cost. Um, what were the lessons you would probably take away from your MBA? The first thing I'll say is that I that I love um, the experience of having gotten an MBA. So I, I have the good fortune of having gotten my MBA from the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Business. So I'm quite proud of that. Um, but I also say that um, anyone who knew me in high school or maybe in my early undergraduate days at uh, Ryder University in, in Princeton, New Jersey, anyone um, who knew me then might have said, there's no way that you'll end up in an Ivy League, uh, in an Ivy League education and that you will have been a successful MBA candidate. But the, the truth of the matter is that the first thing that I'll say is that I took a break between my undergraduate work and my MBA. And I didn't take a break, meaning I, um, that I was on the beach. I took a break in that I didn't attend university um, and I focused on my business work. And I was employed at Deloitte and Touche, one of the big four at that time, even when I first joined one of the big six, the big eight accounting firms. And I learned a ton. But what happened was that Deloitte gave me the opportunity for the MBA to be something that if I would stay with the company, um, that they would invest in me if I invested in them. And so um, my MBA um, came after uh, staying at Deloitte for, um, I guess, about six years. And the beauty of it was that I had to give back by putting additional time into the organization by by staying with um, Deloitte. But the truth is, I loved my experience at Deloitte, and I was going to stay anyway. <laughs> and so um, I got the opportunity to go work on my MBA, have the, ed have the educational cost paid for. And I recognize that not everyone can do that. Um, but I will say that it was it's helpful to look for it, because if you said, 
Did Deloitte do that just for everyone? The answer is no. Was that well advertised and and was that something that everybody knew about? No. But that doesn't mean that if your employer loves you, that you wouldn't be able to have success with that. So that's one comment to make. The second one I would make is the great thing about taking time between my undergraduate education and my graduate school is I learned so much about life, so much about business, and I knew exactly what I wanted to learn when I went for my MBA. And as a result, I was a great, well, this is my words, I was a great MBA student. Let's put this way. I was great in that I was focused. I knew what I wanted to learn. I was a valuable contributor. Um, so that would be my, my definition of great. You have to talk to the University of Pennsylvania about. I was going to say, if we do a documentary on you, we go interview. Uh, they'll be like, he just he was useless, yeah. absolutely useless. <laughs> yes, but I, but I do think that that idea of knowing what you're trying to get educated in, and why you care about learning it, and what you're going to do with this when you walk back out of your education, that makes a big difference. And I use that those skills every day in business today. Again, I, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I left school at 15 years old and started a company. And at the time, everyone thought I was nuts. But the um, I, th I found out who I was and what I liked. And then I could go back and study the things that I realized I liked. But it took me three or four years of, of doing business to realize what I wanted to learn and what I needed to learn, like marketing and so on. And so um, I think it's a really interesting point, right? I mean, probably every great leader, Steve Jobs, for example, talked about how he went off for a while to discover himself and what he needed to learn. I think it's a really important thing. And the other really important point I don't want listeners to miss is um, I, I translate what you just said to like, don't ask, don't get. You know, like if you you never know, you know, if you dream of having a certain, I don't know, uh, um, access to, to, to an education, for example, if you go to an employer and say, look, I'll dedicate myself to you for six years, in return, would you invest, um, you know, at the end of that process in this for me, with me? I would say most employers would say yes. Um, you know, if you're willing to give six years of your life to something, so you can, you can, you can, you know, not have money uh, and and still get these things if if you if you dedicate yourself to to certain things. There's another sense I'm getting from you is that you're very um, you're very dedicated to to the end goal, and and you're willing to to do the work, frankly. And, and I think that's uh, an important thing for people, um, you know, people listening to remember that, you know, good things do come if you apply yourself. A lot of people, Simon, love the shortcut. And, you know, gosh, I, I would love for things to be easy, too. But, um, but one, of the, one of the great teachers, I think, that, that, has, that I've really had is sport. So I, I am a uh, participant in uh, three Ironman uh, world championships in uh, Hawaii. You can't do the Ironman with any shortcuts. There's not a shortcut on the course, but even more importantly, there is no shortcut in the training. You, if you don't train to swim, you will drown. If you, if you're not capable of biking, you're not going to be able to make it up a volcano and back down the volcano. And if you can't run the marathon, then you won't finish. And so the truth of the matter is that that discipline that reminds you that it's as important to train as it is to compete, and that also um, setting out um, milestones. If you ask me whether I'm a natural candidate for um, an Ironman competition, the answer is absolutely not. I'm, I'm not 
um, tall and slender and built uh, to float uh, really nicely or glide nicely across the water, I sink. Um, but if you set your your target to it and you say, this is what I'm going to achieve, and you are really determined, you, you won't fail to achieve it. As long as you don't believe that you can just take shortcuts to get there. So no shortcuts, set your goals high, and the end outcome is awesome. Again, a lesson I think is key to sum up, you know, I think people in life um, want luck, right? They want luck. And I think one of the ironic things about luck is you can actually hack it by just being persistent, um, consistent and taking risk. Uh, you know, that, that, that's the formula for, for the majority of luck. Um, funnily enough, when I was doing research on you, um, I asked a lot of people that, that work for you um, how they felt about you. One of the interesting things that kind of kept coming up was like, people don't know how you do it all. You know, that your Ironman, uh, the actual business itself, which of course running a unicorn and running, a, like you say, a, a company with a lot of regulations and rules. Um, how do you do it all? And, 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 you know, it's the old questions like, what, what does your day look like? How do you do all of these things? Um, so I'm going to first say what I think enables me to do it all. And that is that I'm really stubborn. Um, so I, I have to admit um, I use a phrase frequently when I talk to my team. I say that I do some things with my eyes wide shut. And what that means is that if I believe in something, I want to see and hear all the facts. Um, and I might decide that the facts are just irrefutable and that's the right answer. But I might also decide that it was really important to know those, um, but we're going this way. And I think that... Um, as a result of that, I always feel informed, but I feel that I've um, that I am stubbornly determined to succeed. So I'm a high goal setter and stubbornly determined. That that's for sure. Um, the other thing it almost brings us just back to the very beginning of today's conversation, Simon, and that is, I am only going to be on this earth for so many years, and I want to have a real meaningful life. And I want to do a lot of things. I'm a, I'm a bit of an experienced junkie. I have worked in some awesome um, large companies. I've now had the opportunity to live in Europe. I've had the opportunity to live in Asia. I've had the opportunity to work in a, one of the 10 largest companies in the world. And I, now I've had the opportunity to work in one of the smallest companies in the world <laughs> before it was even a company. And... And I think all of those things add up to being part of that experience junkie where I just am always afraid to miss out. I'm afraid to miss out on what could be the next uh, experience that I otherwise would have wanted to make sure that I've, that, that I've had in my life. Um, that doesn't, but no one should um, interpret that as meaning that I jump from thing to thing and I just like different experiences. I've only had three jobs in my life, so I'm I'm pretty far through my career. Um, there are grays, gray hairs on the screen in front of you. So, um, but at the same point in time, I am an experienced junkie who doesn't want to miss out on these things. And so I keep adding things to my calendar, but I do weed other things out or I sort of slot them to the natural expiration 
of a timeline for something I was previously working on. And as that finishes, I'll step into the next thing that I was going to do. I think experience junkie is a great way to describe how to live life. Actually, you know, it, it, it should never be about chasing money, but money does buy experiences, but some of the best experiences that, you know, you can't buy them, you know, like, like you say, um, I mean, taking where you're taking Bolt Tech. I mean, this is experience, taking it from zero to, to hero, if we can call it that, you know, like that. That is an experience, right? That is an experience. Building the team from scratch, that's an experience. And um, yeah, and I think I think it's a really good life lesson for, for people listening uh, to, to kind of take on board that, you know, like I've, I've been married for 20 years. <clears throat> I love that experience. I love the experience that every year is a challenge. It, it gets both more more challenging and yet easier you know, it's it's somehow following through on marriage is somehow, you know, an experience, you know, like most of my friends are divorced. And I think I think having having that experience, um, going deep on an experience, which I guess is what Iron Man is as well, right? You're going very deep on an experience, you go to different places to do it. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think I think the other thing interesting interesting about the Iron Man, I guess, thing that you do is that I think that's a, that's actually a team sport. People don't see it as a team sport, but there's a whole infrastructure behind it that enables you to to do the Ironman, right? If that team hadn't built that infrastructure, you couldn't be at the Ironman, right? So some some parallel to, I guess, um, you wouldn't be a CEO of the company today if, if the team hadn't built the infrastructure, right? I, I I agree with you completely. And the, the funny the funny thing is, Simon, it gives me a great chance to make a brief comment about my wife, but she is my training partner. And it's funny for anyone who's ever met her. She she's she's a very petite. Um, doesn't strike you as the strongest person you've ever met, but she trains with me in everything I do, from weight training to running, etc. And and she's not an iron woman herself. Um, she's just enjoys that, and we use that to. To multitask. So as I run, I'm engaged in a conversation with my life partner on the things about her life or the things about my life that are very important. And so I wasn't out on a four-hour run by myself leaving my wife to tend to kids, um, but instead it was something that we did together. So I I love that. I've, I am blessed with that uh, very good fortune. And uh, But it does show you You've got to do things as as a team. When I was at, in my graduate education, we used to have a phrase. Um, the great thing about the way that the Wharton School of Business taught us was they taught us very much in a group setting. It was always teams, team for this, team for that. You almost did nothing straight up by yourself. You had to take exams by yourself. You had to study by yourself, but you did teamwork. And we had a phrase that said, you've got to cooperate to graduate. And I love that because it's quite true. If you learn anything about life, it's that not always the smartest person wins, but the people who really have learned how to master this idea of, of balancing IQ and EQ to be great teammates and to get the best out of other people around them and to recognize that sometimes you just need others to help you. I I, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, there's this whole stat, like 80% of A students end up working for D students as well. I mean, you need each other, basically. 
you know, like it, it's anyone out there listening right now that's a D student, you know, you, you learn a different skill to the A student. The, the D student, I think, learns to fail easier, accepts failure easier and, and gets back on the horse, as it were, right? Um, yeah, I, I wasn't a... I wasn't a D student, but I will tell you that I really ascribe to that same point. I have a older brother who is one year older than me who graduated um, high school after only three years and then college after only three years. And and he was employed in a very successful job before he was – before most of his friends would have been even uh, anywhere near finished their college education. Um, but – um, he also has had to learn a lot about the EQ side of the house. And so over time, um, that IQ could only get him so far. And so he's had to f- focus a lot on balancing it out with uh, with EQ. I think, again, you learn from people around you. Whether it's good or bad, you should learn from everyone around you. Learn what you want to copy. Learn from what you don't want to copy. <laughs> and don't copy the things you know not supposed to copy. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I think that's another great point. I mean, and, and my son is five years old and uh, just talking about, you know, schools that he, he could go to. And I went to see a school who basically encouraged copying. I was like, wow, at last. I, I think it's cool. They tell you not to copy. And actually, that's how we learn. Like you say, we, we, we learn to not copy some things. Um, and we learn to copy traits that we see are good in people. I mean, part of this, what this podcast is about. It's like we can hang out together and learn together and, you know, pick apart what worked and what didn't. And, and I think copying is really important. By the way, I also think you've just given the uh, ultimate hack to a happy marriage. Um, I worked with my wife for 15 years. We built a company together. So that's, we used to be in the office at 2 a.m. doing that catch-up chat that we wouldn't have been able to do if, if, if she'd been at home waiting for me to come back from the company I was working too hard at. So, so exercising together or working together, I, I, I actually think is really, do one or the other is pretty, you can double up. <laughs> um and uh, yeah that's a really good really good tip you've thrown in there um i I want to um you know wrap up the podcast just just uh by, by asking you i guess a personal question really um if if you kind of went back to your younger self and gave some advice you know that that, that person starting out in their career starting out in their their business life you know what, what do you think you know what lessons would you would you share with that younger you um i think i would say three things the first one is that it's very important to have a a great moral compass. Um, no matter what has happened in my career, as long as I've done what was right and what my heart told me I wouldn't regret later, even if it was more painful, it always ended up being the 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 good answer. Or at least let's put it this way, you'll learn to make it into the good answer. And so I, I believe that that's number one. Um, number two, I think that a lot of this, which I didn't understand at the very beginning, a lot of this game has really come down to adaptability. Um, ability to adapt to opportunity um, and ability to adapt to the threats and the challenges that come. Everything that gets faced thrown at you is not going to be um, easy or not going to be good and you've got to adapt to that Um, but other things that happen are going to be fantastic and so but you have to it can be fantastic but it's a little bit like you said earlier Simon about luck 
you know, people hope for luck. I hope for luck too. Um, but if you haven't done the preparation, then you have luck, but you don't have the skill or you don't have the preparation. That's still going to limit the the success of that end outcome. And I think the the third one, and this will be a a tougher one, but it's a very personal one, is that you know I will say that people gave me the advice a million times about not trading time with your family for your career. Um, I think I have a great relationship with my family, but but I do feel as though over time I've not done what I probably should have done and could have done with trading time with for my career over my family. And I think if I did go back in time, I would listen to that advice that people have given to me. And maybe that kind of brings you back to, you know, a, an overall comment, which is that history, if it doesn't repeat, it, it at least rhymes. And these things are going to keep happening over and over again. And so when people tell you this is this is what happened, or this is what the outcome will be. Um, at least have your eyes wide shut. <laughs> make sure you really listen. Make sure you really look. And make sure you really think. And if you're willing to move forward and and deal with whatever the consequences are, then super. Um, but you want to live a life with no regrets, and no regrets um, should be on the personal side and on the professional side. Well, thank you for sharing that very personal element, and I and I love the moral compass point. You know, not a lot of people ask themselves this. You know, what is your moral code? Work with people who equal moral code. That's a really important thing to define in yourself, in your younger self. Um, and it doesn't get taught at school. It should be actually. You know, what 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 is right and wrong is really hard to determine, I guess. But digging into you, what your moral compass is, is really important. I think adapting such an important point. You know, rolling with the opportunities, saying yes more often. Um, and then the final one you mentioned there, work-life balance, it really is how I, you know, it's basically so tough, isn't it? It's so tough. And, uh, the only way I've personally been able to achieve it is by, you know, literally my, I'm at my podcast studio today and my son is outside playing Lego. And as soon as I finish with you, I'll go out there and play with him for a little bit, you know, back. But I think the key, you know, and you've touched on this in, in, in your download is like having purpose. If your purpose is strong, your family will understand, right? If you're, if you're helping people, you're saving lives. Um, you know, if you're, if you're doing these good things, then, then your children and your, your spouse will understand, right? So that's why purpose is so important, isn't it? Yes, it is. Rob, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, your, your, your knowledge with us. And I will be following your career uh, for the next four years. <laughs> now doing the countdown. Um, I'll be following. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time out. I know how busy you are running this incredible company, uh, taking time out to share your knowledge with, with my community. It really means a lot to me. And thank you so much, Rob. You're quite welcome. And thanks to everyone for taking the time to listen.